Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about health management and end-of-life care with Dr. Maureen Canavan. Dr. Canavan is an associate research scientist and epidemiologist at Yale Outcomes Public Policy and Effective Research Center, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Maureen, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Uh, As a graduate student, I was very interested in older adult research, uh, specifically things relating to end of life and how holistically uh, a person approached end of life. So uh, I had done a dissertation where I had hoped to look, or I'd started a dissertation where I'd hoped to look at something called prolonged grief disorder, Um, but things changed. And I wound up looking at how acute care stressors or acute stressors were related to mental health outcomes and how those relationships either precipitated through some physical challenges, how they were related to other physical outcomes, Um, So I had always been very interested in end-of-life care and looking at, more specifically, older adults. Uh, I took a little reprieve and uh, worked with global health for a while. But when the opportunity came up to work with uh, Dr. Carrie Gross at Copper um, under the Yale School of Medicine, I knew it was a great opportunity to get back to one of my original passions of really trying to understand how we can make the transition at end of life the best quality for adults. So, um, COPPER, just for our audience who might not have picked up on the acronym, is Cancer Outcomes Public Policy and Effectiveness Research, COPPER. Um, So, Maureen, tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing and some of your research. Great. I'd love to. So, COPPER is a wonderful collaboration between different clinicians across uh, Yale Health um, at Smilo from, you know, different types of malignancies. You know, we work with breast oncologists, um, lung oncologists, and it gives the opportunity to align clinicians with researchers such as myself, epidemiologists, statisticians, so that we can really evaluate some of the challenges that we're facing within the healthcare industry. So we can look at things... um, We tend to focus a lot on health outcomes research. Um, So looking at things of how different types of interventions might have different rates of survival, Um, trying to really understand the relationship as maybe a new medication regime comes out, how that'll affect patients. Um, You know, we also are able to look at quality metrics. So how... Uh, different types of treatments might be related to patient satisfaction, how they might be related to rates of acute care use, um, you know, at different points of the disease trajectory. So copper has been, for me, an opportunity to work with a myriad of clinicians on slightly different projects, but really always getting to that long-term goal of how can we improve and maximize uh, patient care. And so... Tell us how that kind of ties into end of life. What what kinds of projects have you been working on that kind of look at end of life and outcomes? Because certainly when we're thinking about survival, a lot of people may not be thinking about how end of life interventions can affect survival. 
perhaps you're more looking at interventions, um, looking at quality of life. Can you tell us more? Yeah, that's actually a great transition because I think, you know, when we initially approach it, the thought might be, how can we extend patient life? How can we, you know, prolong the time they're here? But I think the importance of quality improvement and just looking at quality outcomes is that we're not looking at it from the lens of how to maximize a number, you know, life years. We're looking at it how to maximize the whole patient's experience. So when patients have advanced or metastatic disease, you know, you're not looking at curative intent anymore. You're really looking to see what is going to be best for the patient. So what we've tried to show in our research uh, is that you need to take all these these elements into account. So when we're looking at something like um, chemotherapy within 30 days of death, well, there's things we want to consider. We want to consider you know, obviously uh, the timeframe, the toxicity of the chemotherapy. We want to think about what's that patient's life like at the end of life in terms of are they having higher rates of acute care utilization? Are they in the hospital? Are they having to go to the ICU? These are all things that the patient might not want. So with our research, what we're hoping to show is that the utilization of some of these metrics, chemotherapy at the end of life, might not be in the best interest of the patient. So what we want, or what I like to advocate as part of that, is the importance of incorporating the patient earlier in the decision-making process. So the idea of having these goals of care conversation earlier with the patient to see what do they want. Do they want, you know, a, a peaceful death at home? Do they want to have something where they're taking palliative treatment. Um, so really trying to prioritize with that. And I've had the opportunity within my own research to really delve into this topic. So we, uh, with the clinicians I work with, Dr. Karen Adelson, um, especially spearheading this, we wanted to show, well, of those patients that are getting higher levels of chemotherapy at end of life, what are we seeing in terms of um, what factors might be associated with that? So the first thing that we wanted to do is just kind of look at the the landmark of what's really going on in terms of end of life care. And so when I'm talking about that, I'm actually focused in on a specific subset in terms of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, those targeted therapies, so systemic anti-cancer therapy is the umbrella we gave it, and seeing how the rates of that have changed over the past few years. And the reason we wanted to look at the change over the past few years was because um, ASCO and the National Quality Forum, I believe it was in 2012, did issue a statement trying to look at reducing rates of chemotherapy at the end of life. They were focused on within 14 days of death because that was thought to be, and uh, there's uh, research to back it up, uh, associated with higher rates of acute care use, higher rates of um, specifically ED and uh, hospitalizations, things that weren't really conducive to a quality death for patients. So we wanted to see, okay, in light of this recommendation from um, ASCO and the National Quality Forum, what happened? Well, over those past few years, we did a study where we actually focused in on 2015 to 2019. Uh, We did see declining rates of chemotherapy within 14 days of death. But an interesting thing was we also saw that as those rates declined, rates of immunotherapy within 14 days of death increased. So overall, we were seeing a very static 
line for rates of systemic anti-cancer therapy. So what is that telling us? That's telling us that people are still getting active therapy. So we said, okay, well, in light of that, that we're seeing that we're not switching switching away from a medicalized approach to handling end of life, what do we see in terms of the factors that are associated with this? So we sought to look at both patient and practice level factors. And by practices, I mean, you know, providers within um, one entity. So it could be multi-sites or single sites. But we did see that actually patient factors such as insurance status and race, as well as the practice setting, if it was in a community versus an academic location, were associated with rates of systemic anti-cancer therapy use um, over these years as well. So then (laughs) the next step and what we're currently actively pursuing is to look at, well, how does this relate to patient survival? So if you find that certain practices might be more aggressive, they have higher utilization of the systemic anti-cancer therapy at end of life, how does that then affect patient outcomes of survival specifically is what our study sought sought to look at. But um, is there a differential there? And the goal with this is really to get at the idea of understanding what end-of-life care landscape exactly is. And I think that, you know, as researchers, one thing we try to constantly stick to is having evidence-based for our um, statements that we're making. So you want to make sure you have the proof to back it up. And so the idea is that if we're not seeing increased survival, which would be one measure of quality of care, why are we doing this aggressive utilization of cancer therapy at the end of life? Why are we giving patients all this medicine when we really should be thinking about helping with their transition, making sure that their end of life is the most satisfactory, the highest quality to our patients? Yeah. So many great points that you made. I, I, I think, you know, to kind of unpack it a bit, um, and, and perhaps to play a bit of the devil's advocate, one has to kind of think about the fact that use of aggressive medical management at the end of life may occur in two different ways, really. One may be um, that people are, you know, facing a cancer diagnosis. They want everything possible done. Um, and they're really trying to give it that last ditch attempt um, to try to extend life. And whether or not that really is fruitful uh, is certainly uh, up for debate and, and part of your research. But the other concept, however, could be that sometimes systemic therapy can have toxicities, and some of those toxicities may in fact be fatal. And so if you're simply looking at an administrative data set and looking at death um, as an outcome measure, is it possible that some of those deaths may not be, quote, due to futile measures uh, at the end of life, but that end of life might actually have been spurred on by toxicities of the systemic therapy? Yeah, you know, I think you're highlighting two great points. And I will say, as a disclaimer, I have not specifically looked at toxicity or anything. So this is me uh, commenting more of an opinion and what I've read than my actual research. But I think there's two things that come into play. The idea of this last-ditch effort, this Hail Mary approach, you know, we all love a good sports game when it's tight at the end and then 
you know, you try something hard and it works. Um, so I think there is something of, you know, from both sides, from both the patient and the provider side that does want to find that working Hail Mary approach. Um, I think the flip side of that is, of course, as you noted, that, you know, toxicity can also be something that happens. It's, you know, the the medicine you're trying to give could be what kind of hurts the patient. And so I think that, unfortunately, with research, we need to tease that out. And the problem or the challenge, as you noted, with administrative data is getting the proper information. And also, I think it's not something where you can, you know, smack the pendulum really hard and it switches to the side where we know everything. It's a very slow, iterative, move the needle process. So I would argue that when we're looking at, you know, these factors where we have data that we can predict survival, okay, well, if we see no survival benefit. But then I think to your point, pardon me, we also do need then to have the data to explore like toxicity. Are there, you know, ways we can measure that for patients at that time frame? I think it speaks to a bigger picture, both of these challenges, the idea that you can't look at just, you know, some of the data that's available administratively, just, you know, the time to death and whatnot. Um, And you can't, Uh, be stalemated at toxicity, you need to think even bigger picture and drive it back to the goals of care with the patient. So I think this is an important thing to advocate at all angles that the earlier you have those conversations, the earlier you can bring up those challenges to patients that you can note, you know, this is a treatment we have. It might extend your life. There is the potential for toxicity. What do you want? So always bringing it back to the patient and focusing about what they want and making sure they're an active participant in it with informed, educated input from their clinician, I think is the most important thing. And one thing that we're hoping our research pushes to drive those conversations to happen earlier and I would say often. Fantastic. Well, we're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about health management and end-of-life care with my guest, Dr. Maureen Canavan. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their oncodermatology program treats dermatologic concerns including very dry skin, itching, and skin changes that arise as side effects from chemotherapy. SmiloCancerHospital.org Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Maureen Canavan. We're talking about health management and end-of-life care. And right before the break, Maureen, you were talking about 
really this importance of having the conversation with patients about their wishes um, early and often, as you said. Um, But I think that that, while certainly something that we cling to as um, an ideal, in practical purposes, I think things always change, right? Um, When patients are treated um, and they say, okay, you know, if things get futile, I really, I don't want aggressive measures. I want to die peacefully at home or whatever the case may be. But then there's a new therapy and then there's a clinical trial. And then there's one last effort that might um, improve uh, life expectancy. And so patients may change their mind. Um, and, and clinicians also, you know, we want what's best for our patients and we certainly want to respect their wishes. So how do we kind of decide or inform what might be futile care and what might actually uh, be worth that last ditch shot? You know, I think one thing is that it's always important to be informed. And when I say that, I'm not saying that clinicians aren't informed, but making sure you inform the patient. So I think to your point, um, early on, you noted that, you know, new treatments are coming out. So whereas at one point we would have thought, you know, if patients are on their third or fourth line of therapy, this might be getting futile. But now, you know, and the two cancers that are coming to mind for me are breast and lung cancer. A a patient could say have five lines of therapy and they're all, it's a, you know, a logical progression from one medication to the the other as new medications come on that have been shown to have patient benefit. So I think it's, it's one of these things where, you know, just in personal life as well, we always advocate communication. So I think there needs to be communication and transparency on both sides, which, um, you know, requires that the provider is always telling the patient, you know, here's the traditional first course that we usually propose. Here's the second you know, as the need arises. And then this is when I said the idea of goals of care conversation early and often is that uh, as the treatment landscape is changing, it's important to have those check-ins, that open communication with the patient and to make sure that, you know, it's always acting in the guidelines of what their goals are. Because as you noted, it's an evolving process. And I think the idea is that they might note that even if there's minimal benefit, those few percent from chemotherapy, it's important to remind them of the holistic aspect of it. Okay, well, you know, there might be a benefit of chemotherapy, but at this point, do you want the challenges associated with chemotherapy? Are you willing to have the majority of your time spent coming in for treatment or do you want more time with your family? All these things. So making sure to check in that even though they might still get a little benefit from you know, potentially chemotherapy. Is that what they want? So I think it it harks all back to the idea of just this open communication between the provider, between the patient to make sure that it's in line with what they want. Yeah. And certainly it brings up this concept of quality of care versus quantity of care um, and, and how we can really assess what is the good life, right? How can we, um, how can we live whatever time we have on this planet um, uh, in a manner in which uh, would bring us the most satisfaction and the most utility? So, 
can you talk a little bit about how you are bringing in those quality of life metrics into your research? I mean, certainly they're a little bit more squishy than survival as a hard endpoint. Yeah, you know, as a a researcher, statistically speaking, we love to talk about this idea of how how good are our metrics? How well do our metrics get at defining it, what we want to show? And I think the biggest challenge with quality care and quality of life is there isn't an opaque standard or gold standard metric that says this, yes or no, high quality of life. So what we have to do is we have to use proxies. And we have to use proxies that might cover certain subsets of quality of life. So maybe one metric, you know, is this Uh, survival time, right? That's a very, you can measure it, it's observable, but it might not be getting at, well, how happy is the patient? So then you might also need to look at factors like self-rated health, how the patient says that they feel. And when I say self-rated health, I'm not speaking just to the physical component, but also the mental health component. Are they, you know, feeling more anxious? Are they having, you know, different aspects of, we'll say, delirium or anything like that, any other type of metrics, you know? But then there's also the idea of cost, right? So how high quality is your life if you uh, have drained your entire bank account and you're dealing with financial toxicity because that can have other effects on you in terms of mental or physically as well. So the challenge is that all the ways that we try to um, measure quality are unfortunately fragmented. They're subsets of it. So we have to use them in collaboration to really get this full idea, full approach. So I think that unfortunately, when you have to do things like that, you need to start with the low-hanging fruit. So what you can measure. And then finding those associations, how can you use that to inform another way to measure? So, you know, if we show rationale that it doesn't extend life, can we follow up with a study where we're looking at some more metrics that might allow or might need to be like um, a survey to the patient where you're asking things about how do you feel, your stress level, your anxiety level. And I think that uh, administrative data is accessible. It's one thing we've been able to use. And I think it, like I was saying before, helps us spur this evidence-based support so that we can look at some of these harder metrics to collect and maybe at a more local level, get that information so that we can really talk about, all right, we looked at survival, but then we also were able to assess, you know, costs. We were also able to assess acute care use. And then we were able to assess mental health because we were able to start using this screener of some sort um, to get at that metric. So I think the idea is important to build off of all these different measures that we have because we need to look at them in combination to really get at this overall quality of life measure. Yeah. You know, the other aspect of it is that what is quality of life for one individual may be very different than what is quality of life for another individual, right? Um, I'm just thinking about the example that you brought up in terms of cost. So for one individual, um, it may not be at all an issue that they're spending thousands of dollars because for them, the utility of that extra 
you know, two days of life or two months of life that they can potentially get with a, a toxic chemotherapy might well be worth it in terms of, you know, the financial and physical toxicity because their values are different than another individual for whom financial toxicity or physical toxicity is far more important and the actual survival time is less important. So how do we factor in individual variance in terms of what quantitates uh, quality of life in terms of making these decisions? I mean, I can imagine that you could from a statistical standpoint, run a, a decision analytic uh, tool. Um, but that's difficult in clinical practice. So what are your ideas with regards to individualizing care in terms of kind of tapping into this whole quality of metrics? You bring up a great point with that because, well, first of all, as a uh, epidemiologist, you know, we love to look at groups and use that to kind of guide how we make our um, informed decisions. But I think the idea is that it's an informed decision. So we can speak to statistical significance that we were able to find in a study. But when it comes to the individual and the provider, you need to take it from statistical significance to clinical significance, but then also to build off there. And, you know, great plug again for goals of care conversation is that there's variability in anything we find in research. So bringing it to the patient, talking through what has been seen with outcomes. And then also, you know, it comes back to that importance of patient preference. So giving patients as much information as we can to make informed decisions, but really coming back to them. And, you know, you can show it, obviously, with decision tools and research, but coming back to the individual patient and that, you know, we've seen these things on gr in groups when we've studied them, but making sure it's in line with what they want. And there's always, like I said, with that variability, a trade-off, you know, in terms of you might have higher quality, shorter time, or, you know, less physical symptoms, longer time, and really that goals of care conversation. And I think just the constant communication with a patient about what is known, what are their options, though probably exhausting, is an essential point of making sure that we are holistically approaching patients' treatment. Yeah. But I do think that to your point, you know, there is a balance to be had between individual therapies and goals of care that are personalized to the patient versus societal perspectives, right? Especially when we're thinking about, as we are currently with uh, the, um, the federal budget and so on and so forth, that you know, healthcare as a society is getting increasingly expensive and putting a global burden on all of our citizens. And so is there a balance to be had when we think about, you know, coming up with guidelines um, for uh, what should be uh, covered versus not covered, particularly by governmental organizations like Medicare? In terms of what we as a society value, um, which may at times be in conflict with individual preferences, how do you kind of, you know, thread that needle? I think that is definitely a challenge with the idea that you do want to make sure you're always thinking, you know, first do no harm, prioritize the patient. But getting to that idea of, you know, if 
there's only going to be a certain amount of types of drugs that are covered, as you noted with Medicare, Medicaid, um, not having that added challenge of financial toxicity for a patient. I think one of the benefits we have having an organized infrastructure like ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, is that they can offer these guidelines. And I think, you know, we almost have to be very cautious with how we take that, that they are guidelines. It's never going to be the perfect solution, but it's our best, most well-informed way to address what will have a benefit, as we've seen, for patients, but also then bringing into account what the patient wants. So I think utilizing guidelines and really trying to find what we have evidentiary support for that is best in line with patient goals. Dr. Maureen Canavan is an associate research scientist and epidemiologist at Yale Cancer Outcomes Public Policy and Effectiveness Research Center. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.